Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. We're in the main theme that deals with the sovereignty of God. There are several themes, five main themes, really, in the the book of Romans. But uh, in in chapters 9 through 11, uh, Paul's talking about how God is in total control will be a way to view uh, the sovereignty of of God. Uh, He makes that argument uh, beginning in in chapter 9 by talking about how God, in his own sovereign will, chose... Uh, the nation of Israel. You can see the, the three uh, topics on the next slide uh, that we've been looking at. Uh, God did not choose uh, Israel for any other reason than his own sovereign will. He decided to do that. And God, being a sovereign God, uh, had the right to do so. Uh, God also, being a sovereign God, uh, even though he chose Israel, in his own sovereign will, he allowed them the, uh, the choice of rejecting him. If, if they did. And, and of course, the nation as a whole, not everyone, but the nation as a whole of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah when, when he first came. Uh, but as we enter into Romans 11, and that's where we start today, we're going to see that, that God is still a sovereign God and, and God's sovereignty, his purpose for Israel will still be realized because even though the nation as a whole had rejected Christ as the Messiah, there is coming a time that they're going to realize who Jesus is, that they're going to recognize that he is their Messiah and the, the righteousness that God had promised them will, will be realized. Uh, you may be wondering why that is significant in our in our day and time. Uh, you'll see, I think, in the course of the message today, uh, a couple reasons uh, for that. Uh, but one reason that I not really plan on talking a lot about, but in the first service I, I felt the need to, to communicate, and, and that is the, the reason we need to understand God's not finished with Israel, is that there's kind of a movement that's not new, that's been going on for a long time, to where uh, Satan would love to destroy God's people. And he would love to destroy the nation of Israel and wipe Israel off the map. And there are people uh, in our day and time that are becoming more and more sympathetic to Islam, and uh, which, which, by the way, and I'm, I'm not just trying to throw stones at, quote, other religions, but any religion that does not view Jesus Christ as who he is and their faith is not in Jesus Christ is a cult. And, and, and Islam... Uh, has really had its uh, uh, part of its desire is to wipe Israel off the map. I mean, there are even some leaders of Islamic countries today that are saying, if we could, we would destroy the nation of Israel. And, and if we're not careful, if we as believers do not understand that Israel is still God's people, then we might let some of that mentality slip into our mindset because it's already happened in the past history. There are, you know, elements in our past history, even during World War II, that, you know, made it sound like they were even using the, the, the scriptures to say, well, look, the, the Jews rejected Jesus the Messiah and nailed him to a cross, so they're no good, so we ought to just do away with them. And 
some of that same mentality is in the world today. So we need to guard against that anti-Jewish type mentality, anti-Semitic mentality by understanding God chose them. They're still his people. God will still use them in the future. So that's kind of part of why we're talking about this today. The other part of why we're talking about it is simply this. God chose Israel sovereignly and made a covenant with them. God always keeps his covenant. God always keeps his promises. And you see, the reason that ought to kind of excite us today is this. He's also made a covenant with us through his son. And I'm so thankful today that we have evidence in scripture that God always keeps his covenant. That God always keeps his covenant. Because if he would break one back there, he might break the one he has with us. And I'm so glad to know that, that God is, is always a faithful God. Paul is, is going to raise a, a question and then answer it. The, the question he's really raising is, is pretty much this. Uh, is God, or will God, or has God cast away his people, the nation of Israel, forever? And, and then the answer to that is, is no, God has not permanently cast Israel aside. And yes, there is a future for Israel. And in, in Romans chapter 11, he's going to offer us several proofs of that. We're going to look at the first two proofs today, and then we'll look at a proof next Sunday, God willing, the week after that. We'll look at the last proof in Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at two proofs today. Why God has not permanently and will not cast away his people, the nation of Israel. The first proof that Paul gives is, is a personal proof. And by that, I mean he's using himself as an illustration. Uh, he's, he's gonna, uh, let me read the, what he says here and then we'll look at how he raises a question and he answers it and, and then kind of what it means. But, but he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people by no means? He said, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Now, in, in with this, bear in mind that Paul himself, based on what he says here, he himself is an Israelite. Paul himself was someone that had rejected Christ as the Messiah and was even hunting down Christians, trying to be sure they were put in jail or killed one. And yet, Jesus chases him down. And he has a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And he himself experiences salvation. Look, look at the question that, that he raises to start with. The question is simply this. I ask, and, and by the way, uh, I ask... In, in the Greek, more or less means that he's kind of laying something for this. Like he's, he's getting ready to lay out a systematic argument is, is what he's about to do. A systematic discourse. And, and his question is, has God rejected his people? Talking about the nation of Israel. And, and that word reject means to shove or push. And it you know, kind of gives me the idea as I was studying this week, will, will God take his people and just push them off the cliff? Will God just push his people away from him? Now, if, if we would just kind of stop and think about all that God did to create his people, to start with, that kind of should imply to us that God's not going to reject them because God went to a great deal of trouble to put the nation of Israel together. He called Abraham, called Abraham out of a heathen worship, brought him uh, to a promised land. And from there, you just follow out the history of the nation of Israel. God was building them, building them, building them. God even sent them into Egypt at a time there was a famine 
taking place. And, and in spite of being in slavery, God allowed them to, to grow into this huge nation. And then God sends a deliverer, Moses, in to, to bring them out. So God went to a lot of trouble to establish a nation of Israel. So I don't think he would just do that just to push them off the cliff. The question is simply that, will God reject his people? His answer is this, absolutely not. He says by no means, and when you look at that phrase, it really means absolutely not, or may it, may it never be, may this never, ever, ever happen. And then Paul uses himself as a reason why. Uh, think about, as I said, who Paul is. He was an Israelite. But out beside that, if you're taking notes, you might want to write Paul's salvation. Maybe I should have put that in my notes and I didn't. But, you know, out beside that in your notes, you might want to just put Paul's salvation. Because who Paul is involves him having been an Israelite, having been someone who was rejecting the Messiah, having been someone who persecuted the church, and yet God saved him. Paul's argument is simply this. I'm an Israelite. Since God saved me, that's evidence that he's not through with the Israelites. Because he saved me. That's what he's saying. When, when, he, when he makes that argument, he says for, and, and that literally means a sign of reason and an argument. He's making an argument. He said, I'm an Israelite. The, the, word, the word Israel meant he will rule as God. God gave that name to Jacob. So if, if God brings up this nation and the name of their forefather, uh, the father of the nation, meant he will rule as God. Doesn't sound like he's planning on casting them away. He, he said that, that I'm a descendant of, of Abraham, who's the father of a multitude. God had promised there would be this multitude. Doesn't sound like he's through with the nation of Israel. He, he also said that I'm of the tribe or the race or the, or the clan of Benjamin, and the name Benjamin means son of, of the right hand. So it's like God is saying by the name of Benjamin for that tribe, they're like at my right hand. So once again, all that to me doesn't sound like he's just going to, push Israel away. But when you think about Paul's salvation specifically, because a lot of theologians believe that Paul's own salvation experience that God is using as a picture or an illustration of how God is dealing with the nation of Israel. Three times in the book of Acts, Luke refers to the salvation experience of Paul. He's not doing that to elevate Paul because of how good Paul was. Paul was killing Christians. Most theologians believe he is referring that many times to the salvation of Paul because Paul's experience gives us a picture of the, of the experience of the nation of Israel. Paul rejected Christ as the Messiah. Paul literally saw the glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul trusted in Christ. Paul was blinded for three days. After word got out that Paul was now a Christian serving as Jesus Christ, the Jews decided they were going to hunt him down. And then Paul goes on to serve Jesus and spread the gospel. Think about how that's also a picture of the nation of Israel because they rejected the Messiah. The Bible tells us that they will see the one that they pierced. They will literally see the glorified Christ. When they do, they will trust in their Messiah and they will receive him. They have been in a blinded state because of their rejection of the Messiah. 
Once the Jews start to go out and spread the gospel in Revelation, it talks about how that 144,000 are going to be used and they're going to go out and spread the gospel. Guess what? The world and the Antichrist want to hunt them down and kill them. It's a picture. Paul's salvation is a picture of how God is dealing with the nation of Israel. But the reason Paul is is bringing that up, I I think, is simply this. It's what I've already said a moment ago. Paul is saying, hey, if if God is through the Israel, why did he save me? And, And it's not just who Paul is, but it's also because of what Paul is doing. So maybe out beside this, you might want to write down the word service. Paul experienced salvation, but Paul is also serving Christ. He was used by God to write more of what we refer to as the New Testament than anybody else. He he was called and used by God to go all over Asia Minor and plant churches and spread the gospel. So, So here's kind of my question. If God is through with the Israelites, if God is through with Israel... What in the world is God doing using Paul? Because if God's going to push anybody over a cliff, look like to me it would be the dude that's out there hunting Christians down to kill them, put them in prison and persecute them. And yet God calls him, transforms his life, and uses him to spread the gospel. So Paul's just simply using his own life as a personal illustration that God is not through with the nation of Israel. Then he moves from this personal proof using his own life to show us that God is not through the nation of Israel to giving us a lot of historical proof in in the rest of these verses verse 2 through 10 to show us why God is not done not finished with the nation of Israel here's the first historical proof he he writes this in verse number two first part of verse number two God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the first historical proof that God is not done with Israel is this, God's foreknowledge. Do you understand what God's foreknowledge means? It means God knew in advance that Israel would reject the Messiah. It did not come as a surprise. God did not sit around after Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. And God sitting in heaven scratching his head saying, I never saw that coming. He understood and knew in advance that's exactly what would happen. So the historical proof that God knew in advance does, you know, that, that gives us evidence that God has not, oops, I'm going to reject them now because I knew in advance what they were going to do to start with. See, that's not consistent with the character of God. Let me illustrate that. I, I referred to Moses a moment ago being sent into Egypt to lead his people out, lead God's people out. Did God not know, being an all-knowing God, when he sent Moses in and brought them out with all the miracles and everything else, that, that just a few days out into the desert, that Israel would start griping and bitter and complaining against him and Moses and say, let's go back into Egypt because we miss the melons and the leeks. Sure, God's an all-knowing God. He knew they would do that. But he brought them out of Egypt anyway. Now, how should that be a blessing to us? Well, I, maybe it's not to you, it is to me, because here's the deal with me. I've received Jesus by faith. I'm saved by grace, not because of what I've done, 
at all. And if you're saved, that's exactly your position too. It's not because of who you are or what you've done. It's all of grace. But regrettably, I'm not always being on the other side of my salvation what I should be. God knew it in advance. God is not going to push his people away because he knew in advance that they would let him down. God will not push us away because he knows in advance that we would let him down. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. And God, with foreknowledge, knew every stinking time I would let him down. And every time that you would let him down and sin in your life on the other side of your salvation, God also knew with full foreknowledge that the nation of Israel would reject the Messiah. So he's not going to push them away because of that. He knew that before he called them. Before he created them to be in his people. Another historical proof that he gives us that God is not done with the nation of Israel is this. The, he, he proves it by talking about a, a remnant of faithful believers in the Old Testament. Look, look what he says in, in the second part of verse 2 and down through verse 4. Do you not know that the script, what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. And, and here's, you know, Elijah's kind of on a pity party. <laughs> you ever been on one of those? And, and, and he said, Lord... They have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. God, I'm the only one that's faithful, I'm the only one that's serving you. And they seek my life. Now, just keep that screen up, because I'm going to finish reading the, the verse in a moment. Here's the background of that. Elijah had been up on Mount Carmel, and he kindly challenged the prophets of Baal. And what he was doing was this. We're going to decide who the real God is. Because Elijah wanted to show the nation of Israel who is really God. And it wasn't Baal, by the way. And the challenge is this to these prophets of Baal. We're going to you know, fix this altar up and you cry out to your God, to Baal. And, and I will cry out to my God. And the God that answers with fire upon the altar is the real God. <clears throat> So the prophets of Baal started, and they were screaming and cutting themselves and jumping up and down, everything else they could do, trying to impress their God to send down fire. But you know what happened? No fire came because there's no such thing as Baal as a God. Then Elijah comes over, and he calls upon God. But before he does, to make it really evident who's the real God, he said, let's pour a bunch of water on this wood. And they soaked it down with barrels of water. And then he called upon God, and the fire came down and burned it up. That's a pretty good victory, isn't it? <clears throat> but then, on the other side of this great victory that Elijah faces... He, he finds out that there's a woman by the name of Jezebel, who was the queen, was out to get him. And he runs. Now, ladies, don't get mad at me. I'm not trying to diminish who you are at all, but I want to talk to the guys a minute. If you're going to take off and run because some woman is after you, I, you, I don't know what you need to do. <laughs> you need a man up or you know, I better not go there. <laughs> but you know regrettably that's true of our experience a lot of times have you ever had this really 
spiritual victory, this spiritual high. And right on the other side of it, the enemy attacks, and you get depressed and discouraged and feel defeated. That ever happened to you? Happens to me all the time. You know why? Satan doesn't want us to be up on the mountaintop feeling like our God is really God that can deal with everything. He wants to keep us beat down. And a lot of times, I'm just warning you up front, if you get a big spiritual high, you might as well expect the enemy to attack. You might as well expect to have to deal with some discouragement and depression in your life on the other side of it. Happens all the time. But the point that he's making is this. The point that he's making, even though the majority of the nation of Israel was ungodly at that point in time. And Elijah's crying out to God like he's the only one. God answers Elijah and he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That means no matter how bad it gets in the worst of times, God has a remnant. We live in a day it would be really easy for us to get discouraged. You can look at the economy or, you know, ungodly laws being passed that absolutely go against the Word of God. Be real easy for us to kindly, you know, uh, think, well, you know, it's all over with. Listen, I'm telling you, God always has a faithful remnant. And the point that Paul is making, if you look through the Old Testament, it never ever was the whole nation of Israel, everyone that was a Jew, it never was all of them being faithful and all of them being godly, but, but God had a faithful remnant all the time. So the argument Paul is making is this, just because the nation as a whole rejected Jesus as the Messiah does not mean that God is done with the nation of Israel because he always has a faithful remnant. He had one all through the Old Testament. He had one in Paul's day. He's got one in our day. So God is not going to throw away the nation of Israel because there never ever was a time in history that the whole nation was faithful. God always had a remnant. And, and that's the argument that, that Paul is, is, is giving here. And he, he's making that out of 1 Kings you know, 19 and, and 14. It's what he's quoting from on, on Elijah. There's always a, a remnant that God blessed and used. Isaiah said this, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, some translations use the word remnant there, but if the Lord had not left us a few survivors, a few faithful people, is what's being said, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, which would be what? Don't. Destroyed. Vanish. So he's saying, God always had a remnant. God always had faithful people. And he's not going to reject the nation just because some were unfaithful. Look at some other proof text of that before we move on. Samuel said this, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. You understand what that means when he says for the sake of his great name? When God talks about his name, or you talk about the name of Christ and things like that in the Bible, it's putting the very character of God at stake. He's saying because of God's own character, he will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. You see, if God were to reject his own people, it would be God breaking his promise. It would be God breaking his covenant, which would be a character flaw. God never does that. He always keeps his promise. Psalm 94, for the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Look at Jeremiah. 
Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, and what God is saying is this, if, if all my own word, my own law, my own decrees were to vanish, that's the only way that, that I would ever reject Israel. He said, only if all these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. Freeze frame that just for a minute, and I'll finish reading it. Here's the deal with that. Iran or anybody else can say they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Can I tell you something? It will never, ever happen because God said they'll always exist. He said, this is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below can be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. He said, I'm not going to reject them because of their performance unless all of it could be measured and discovered. You know what? That was true in that day. It's true in this day. We still don't know. Everything's in the depths of the ocean. We still can't go in the middle of the earth. We can't measure it all out, figure it all out. God will never, ever reject his people. Another historical proof that he gives us is this, the third historical proof why God will not reject the nation of Israel, why he is not done with the nation of Israel is simply this, the grace of God, God's grace. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by what? Grace. Not their own value, not their own worthiness, not their performance, not their works. Chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, <clears throat> grace would no longer be grace. Now, you know, here's what Paul's saying. God chose Israel based upon what? Grace. His own sovereign will. They didn't deserve to be chosen out of all the nations of the earth. There was not any nation, any people, any person that's ever been on the face of the earth, say Jesus Christ, that deserved or were worthy enough to be chosen by God. God, based on grace, chose Israel. If he chose them based on grace, he's going to keep them based on grace. He did not choose them because they were good enough, because of their performance. Neither will he keep them or throw them away because of their performance or the lack thereof. It is all of grace. And he said, if it's not grace... If it were to be based upon works, it's not grace whatsoever. He, he said there, it's by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God, based on his sovereign will, chose Israel. God, based on his sovereign will, will keep Israel because both are by grace. Why is that important to us? God did not and will ever choose you or me, either one, because of our performance, because we're good. He saves us because of His grace, and He keeps us because of His grace. We don't keep ourselves based upon our performance or how we look or how we act. He keeps us because of His grace. That's why that's important to us. It's not just the nation of Israel that we're talking about, because you can sit back and say, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not an Israelite. What does this matter to me? It matters a whole lot. God is a faithful God that keeps his promises. He saved you by grace. He will keep you by grace. It's not based upon your performance and who you are. It's based upon his perfect will. See, those two things can't cohabit together. Grace and works offset each other, destroy each other. Grace destroys work salvation. If you try and have work salvation, it destroys grace, and you can't mix the two together. 
I'm going to stop and run a little bit of a side rabbit because I have a concern that you've heard me voice before. But I have a concern that I think is a real concern that all across America there are people who attend church. I've got a concern that there are people who sit here week in and week out maybe and hear the message and you understand it's about grace but somehow you're still tying into it what you have to do and if you're trying to tie into it what you have to do you have destroyed the grace of God and you cannot experience authentic salvation as long as you are holding on to what you do it is all of grace all of God's choice all of God's sovereign will it's not based upon your performance or mine it's grace and I'm just afraid there are people all across this world that are going to miss that. People who went to church and said, man, I sat there and I sung and I gave and I tithed and, you know, everything else and, and, and all. And I understood Jesus died on the cross and, and yes, about grace, but, 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 no, you can't add a but to it. If you do, you destroy the power of the gospel. You destroy salvation if you add anything to it. The last argument that he makes is this. The last historical proof that God's not done with Israel is supported by prophecy. In other words, things that were already written, things that were already said. God had, had prophesied in advance that Israel would not receive the Messiah as a nation. God had already said that there would be those who would believe and those who would not believe and those who would not believe. He would harden their heart and dim their eyes. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In other words, those that accepted it by faith, whether in this day and time or the Jews in that day and time, if they believe by faith, they, they obtain salvation. They're part of God's elect. But the rest who rejected it, who rejected Christ, either then or now, he, he, he said the rest were hardened. As is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then he quotes David. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them and let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What he's, what, what he's doing is just making an argument. God had already said, some would believe, God already knew and said, some will believe, some will not. Those who would not, he said he would harden their heart. He always had a what? A remnant. We've already talked about that. A remnant who believed. But there are those who did not believe, and because of their lack of faith, God hardened their heart. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, and also from, from Deuteronomy chapter 29. In Isaiah 29, it says, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, talking about the prophets, and covered your heads, talking about the, the seers. And then in Deuteronomy 29, 4, it says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Paul is simply saying, I'm quoting what God's already said. There would be those that would never believe. That does not mean he's cast away all the nation of Israel. He knew in advance there'd be those who would not believe. He quotes David from Psalm 69 in verse 22 and 23. And, and there in, in, in Psalm 20, uh, 69, it, it says this, let, let their own table before them become a snare. Uh, and when they are at peace, 
let it become a trap. More or less, that phrase means this. He's saying, let the very blessings that I've given to Israel be a snare and a trap to them. Let the very table I spread before them bring judgment on them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. God put in Israel aside and coming to the Gentiles had always been prophesied. It had always been part of God's plan. And since it was always part of God's plan, and God had already said it would happen, that gives us evidence that he will not, will not, will not cast away Israel forever. And he is not finished with the nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, we'll see this in a, in a couple of weeks. But Paul says this, Lest you be wise in your own conceits. He's writing to, to people who believe. Lest you be wise in your own conceit. In other words, lest you think, oh, look at us. We're the ones who receive grace. Look how bad Israel is. And that's what some people have done. He said, I, I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know what that's saying? When God is through reaching out to the Gentiles, He still has a plan for Israel. He will still use the nation of Israel. I'm going to repeat something I've already said because I don't want you to miss what all this is about. As I understand, it's a lot of this is kind of technical stuff and, and everything you say, well, what does that matter to me? It matters the world. It matters your eternity. Because what Paul is saying here is simply this. God is faithful no matter what men do. God is faithful no matter how men fall that are in a covenant relationship with Him. No matter if men break their promise, God always, always, always keeps his end of the bargain. God always keeps his promise. God always keeps his covenant. And he's made a covenant with us through the blood of Jesus. And if you know Christ as your Savior, man, you ought to be pumped right now to understand that God will never push you away. God will never cancel your salvation. God will never push you over the cliff. God will never reject you because he's made a promise a covenant with you through the shed blood of His Son. And if you're someone that has never believed in Jesus Christ, and maybe you've not trusted in Christ because you kind of thought, well, I, I, I know I need to, but I just don't know if I can live up to it. I don't know if I can keep my end of the bargain. Can I tell you something? You can't. <laughs> but He can. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior today, you ought to have the motivation to say yes to Jesus because here's the deal. God never breaks His promises. And He promises whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you'll come to Jesus Christ by faith, God makes a covenant with you in the shed blood of His Son. He will never, ever, ever break the covenant. He will never break His promise. What happened when the nation of Israel was this? They had all these privileges... All these neat things God did for them that should have led them to faith in Christ. Instead, they misinterpreted and it led them to all the blessings of God really being a snare to them because somehow they interpreted it as 
We're Israel. We're good enough. We're God's people. We'll, we'll do it all by ourselves. We don't need the Messiah. You see, there are people that still fall into that trap today. And if you're someone that's been thinking, you don't need God, you don't need Jesus, you're a pretty good person, the truth of the matter is, all of us deserve hell. All of us are sinners. Every one of us is sin. You, me, Billy Graham, everybody else, all of us have sinned. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is you need to trust in Him, and you need to accept the covenant that God wants to make with you, and understand God will never, ever break His promise. He will never, ever take the covenant away from you. He'll never, ever wipe away the blood of His Son. Let's pray. Father, God, I, God, I just want to pray, first of all, for, <clears throat> for your people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, the people that you raised up. Well, I, I'm going to pray what I know is your will, because you said that they would always exist before you. But God, I, I just pray protection over them from the enemies, so many enemies that would love to see them destroyed. But God, not only protection over the Jews. Father, I, God, I want to pray the gospel over them. Father, I, I, pray that, I pray that many Jews would come to faith in Jesus. I, I know you're not done with the nation of Israel. You tell us that. I know you're going to use them in the future. But God, right now, even during this time of the gospel to the Gentiles, Father, I, I just pray that, that multitudes of the nation of Israel, multitudes of those who are your people, the Jews, would come to you by faith. Father, for those of us today that know Christ as Savior, God, we celebrate your faithfulness. We celebrate right now that you will never, ever break your promise. And Father, if there's someone here that does not know Christ and has never trusted in Him, because maybe they felt like they couldn't hold up their end of the bargain. Help them to see that you're faithful. You're the one that makes the promise. You're the one that's done it. It's all of grace. It has nothing to do with our works. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that needs Christ today, you'd open their eyes and help them to see it's all of your grace. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.